This one's this one was for me. This is a, a one-on-one interview with a, a man whose name has been pronounced several ways over the years. Uh, Brad Serling used to call him Kadelchik or Kudlechik, but uh, I do believe it's Kudlesik. John Kudlesik, guitarist, one of the founding members of Dark Star Orchestra. Um, Jerry of Dark Star, yeah. He was the Jerry of Dark Star, but he also, he tells the whole story about how he got to that job and how, you know, he's also a songwriter. So, I mean, you, it's, it's a trade-off. It's a sacrifice when you decide to, you know, devote yourself to doing something like that. And he's currently on tour. He's part of the full-time band now, right? He has just joined um, the JGB with Melvin Seals. We talk about Melvin a little bit. Hopefully, when they come back, we can talk to Melvin himself and really talk to him a bunch. Um, it's interesting. He's a, he's a, he's a... Who? Kudlesik. Let's call him JK for now. On. JK. He's very, first of all, he's very forthcoming in this interview. I love that. And he's very um, bold. I guess I would think that stuff like the first night of him playing with Bob Weir and Phil Lash in the band would be memorable to him. But he had kind of a hazy memory about that, had, had the wrong song. It's the first one that he sang. He thought it was Althea. That's in the second set. The first song he sang was Bird's Song. But you're surprised. I mean, they were talking about like the uh, musician who's like leading the charge of stoners worldwide i mean i can't he's, imagine him to remember shit come on first of all he's a pretty sharp guy and th- don't you think a gig your first playing with two people like bob weir and phil lesh when you've been in a grateful dead cover band would be would be somewhat significant unless you're on acid or on a. he's not a, why are you a, doing drugs into this seth he's not a drug guy he's a, grateful dead music is known for drugs so why would that appear why would that necessarily apply to him i'm not saying he did it or didn't do it i'm just saying dude folks you're able to hear arguments like this on all kinds of podcasts <laughs> on osiris media or I guess a lot of them are agreement fest, but but there's spirit and <laughs> debate on a lot of them. And uh, I'd like to tell you about the tapes archive. <clears throat> Their second season has begun, and it began with uh, an episode on Neil Peart, or is it Peart? I don't know. People go back and forth on that. The legendary drummer from Rush. I may be talking with one of the members of Humphreys McGee about Neil Peart Ooh, this weekend, and maybe he'll that. maybe he'll tell me uh, how to pronounce his name. But um, tapes archive is a gentleman who is a newspaper reporter. And uh, other print reporter would call people. So these are um, raw interviews. These aren't interviews that were intended to air the way they di- they uh, will. And I find that very interesting. Do you ever look at the article that was actually written after that? 
Uh, I think I saw the Trey one and, and, the, and the Dweezil Zappa one. Those are the only ones. Interesting. And but also, it's, I think it's fascinating that you, Rob Turner, would be so interested in a podcast called Tapes. Yes. But I mean, think about it. That's what we're trying to go for here, conversation, because a lot of interviews come off like depositions or just real stilted. And like a real conversation really gets you into the character of yeah. the subject. So Tapes Archive is like that, because these are just conversations. The, the musicians know that they're, not everything's going to be printed verbatim, right, that right. their stuff is just going to be lifted and used in an article. So it's more of a real conversation, which to me is, is more conducive to podcasts. I, I agree. I agree. It's kind of the, yeah, I agree with that, Rob. Look at that. We're in agreement. We're in agreement. How about that, Boring. folks? Boring. Hey, it's tax season, Seth. You know what that means, folks. Don't wait until April and get screwed. Get Polay. Call Polay Clark. You can go on their website, polayclark.com. P-O-L-A-Y-C-L-A-R-K. They got smarts and hots. They got smarts to keep up with the tax laws and uh, measure your investments out so that you're taken care of even if you don't have another hit song or you don't play for another professional team. And... They have and, hearts. Yeah, they got the hat. They got hearts to like genuinely care about what's going on with you and and genuinely want the best for you. And I recommend them wholeheartedly. They've been a supporter of this song, <laughs> supporter of this show. <laughs> we don't edit, folks. This is raw. Raw. Since almost since we started, which is almost five years ago now. Are we no, coming up on the fifth no, anniversary? No, no, fourth. There's no way we're at five years. No way. Okay, four years. Whatever. I mean, time does go fast, especially for you, but no. Doesn't I mean, matter. Hey, big news today. Speaking of financial accounting, we finally paid off our uh, first engineer. Yes, Josh Thane. Thank you so much. I also saw his band out at um, Hunt House in Marietta in that little room that I love. Ah. Ooh, did I buy a Kevin Kinney? I wanted to go back there and see Kevin Kinney. I got to remember to buy that ticket. It might have sold out already. It's this little tiny room, and it's just real chill. It's all wood. People actually listen. For the most part, there was some chit-chat. But, but his band, Migrant Worker. Migrant Worker played. Uh, Benny Burrell opened. Some folks Burl, sat in with Burl. him. Burl. I shot video. That Benny Burrell episode that we got? Yes, hopefully we'll get that. Maybe for our next live show, we'll we'll release that in advance. Maybe you've you've been sitting on it for a while, so maybe you'll listen to it. This Actually, week. you have a big. The guy we just paid was sitting on it, I think. It, well, yeah, but <laughs> now it's been sitting on it. At any rate, Rob's about to die here. Yeah, I'm. I've been fighting this cold, trying to stave it off. I've been winning, but it's been breaking my body now. Yeah, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm going to Disney with my son next week, and now you're coughing all over my mics. Airborne. So I went to a show last night. Um, Dust Bowl Revival. Yes. And I guess since I've been like laying low and not walking around as much as usual, that my leg was vulnerable. And even though I was doing very mellow dancing, I totally pulled a muscle on the inside of my... You were standing. Right. But enough dancing to pull a muscle. Ugh. Anyway, thank you, Airborne, for helping me fight this flu. So I want to point out... um, Melvin Seals and JGB.com for tour dates. They're all over the place, including the Wilbur in Boston and uh, Warfield in San Francisco. Um, again, John is an, an official member. You can go to his website to find out about his other. He's also in Golden Gate Wingman. He was in further, as I said, with, with uh, Phil and, and Bobby. Um, he's in a ton of bands. It's, it's J-O-H-N-K-A-D-L-E-C-I-K.com. And I was just real impressed with how forthcoming he was how assured of himself he was. Um, and I don't know, he, he, he doesn't let on that he was nervous at all when he, when he walked out on stage either that time or we talked about the Radio City Music Hall when uh, the Bobby and Phil learned that Bear Owsley had died. You know who Owsley is, right? Yeah. So, which is probably a pretty heavy moment for them. And they went out and did a song called Alice D. Mil- Millionaire. 
into Cream Puff War, and I think that was a highlight of uh, the, the history of that band, and we talk about that, and we talk about all kinds of, we talk about some of the old songs they used to do, because like Dead, or, Dead and Company or not, they have their moments. From a song choice perspective, a little boring, a lot of, most of it's stuff the Dead were doing in the 90s. Further wasn't like that. Further was doing Ryan Adams stuff. Further was doing originals. Further was doing stuff that went back to the old Paro, David Crosby, um, Paul Cantner, and Jerry, and all that stuff back in the day. So we get into all that, folks. And well, we hear a Robert Hunter song, a song Robert Hunter wrote that oh, nice. John, for, for John. Well, thanks for uh, taking the time and doing that, Rob. I appreciate you going out there. And uh, this one was, was this one done at Diamond Street? And, yes. Uh, thank you, Spencer Garn, Diamond Street Studios. And, um, we were going to, since it's me and, and uh, since it's John and I, John and me, uh, we were going to talk about Seth in the outro, but Seth unbelievably has decided not to. Yeah, yeah, no, mainly because you have a cold and I don't want to get a cold because I'm going to Disney World with my son in a couple days, but, uh, you know. This uh, is a first, right down the date, Seth not wanting to talk about himself? Wow. Maybe it's more that I want to be around you. And he also wants shorter episodes for you listeners. He That's thinks- right. So let's get right to it. Ladies and gentlemen. He thinks you have short attention spans. No, I think that they Jam band fans. have many options. And the last <laughs> thing they want to do is listen to us ramble about things like, hey, folks, don't forget, please take a moment and rate us on iTunes or things like that, You know, which, by the way, please do. We, we Only if you it. like us. If you don't like us, email us directly at insideoutwtns uh, at gmail.com. Hey, if it's clever and not just harsh, we might read it in the air, you know? Maybe. Maybe we'll read it on the Airborne, Rob. Ha <laughs> ha. That stuff is like heroin to me right now. Yeah, he's overdosing on vitamin C. Okay, folks. So but that's you. That's, yeah, that's Seth's me. noise. That's in the other room. Sorry about that. Uh, so hot French bread. Let's get this show on the road. John Cudlesson. Twelve or something, we had some writing, like a writing session. Yeah, the Seven Hills of Gold era, right? Yeah, yeah. So we had a writing session, and uh, you know, he had a big folder of lyrics, a bunch of them were Robert Hunter lyrics, and uh, and he'd kind of, picked, you know, we worked on two of them, and he made little demos on his phone, and he had sort of claimed them to, you know, to sing, and we worked on a couple other songs by a different lyricist. Uh, it's a whole other story. Garrett Graham, by chance? No, no, uh, Indie River Flow. He wrote the stuff on you, but I noticed you had referenced Liquid Silver Live. That's actually a, 
that's actually a uh, album I I may want to uh, uh, do a what do you call it, recall on because the lyricist just belted down so far I can't even sing his words anymore. He just got so abusive with me. Really? Over over whether his girlfriend was going to be my merch person or not, and whether she was also going to be in charge of all of my art. And, you know, he just, all of a sudden, all these things became implied because we'd written some songs together. And, you know, and, and in the in the work trying to work it out, he just, at every turn, you know, I like even kept it on email, figuring, okay, this will keep us from getting, and I just somehow, I don't know what, I don't know, he's a crazy guy. But anyway, I can't do any. I really can't sing any of those songs anymore. And I would just as soon hear them or not hear them played on the radio. Frankly, <laughs> Liquid Silver Live stuff. Right. So, uh, but uh, you know, I have that new on the road, and uh, which is a mix of new and old tunes. And which the title track of the first song? I mean, the title of the first song is significant, is it not? Oh, the uh, the how, how am I not, not myself? myself? Well, that was just the thing. You know, it's 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 a reference to one of my favorite movies. Okay. Uh, which is I Heart Huckabee's. Uh, it's sort of like the central theme of I Heart Huckabee's, you know, like the like the finding yourself thing or whatever. And uh, and it was really just the, you know, those were improvs, and I just you know that I named after the fact because you know we ended the da 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 da, and that just came into my head as how am I not myself? But to me, <laughs> it hit me because you know in further mm-hmm. a lot of what you're playing is like Jerry, yeah. and a lot of my favorite moments though are when you came out, and I can even be specific. There was one time at the tower. You're rolling, right? I hope he's rolling. There was one time at the tower, and it was Slipknot, and yeah. Phil started it. Phil took it uh-huh. very away from the Grateful Dead, and you jumped right on it. Do you remember that at all? I and the jam went completely. Usually those moments I don't remember. Well, I would. The only reason I thought you might is because it went out of the dead context, and then it ended up in eleven, and it was just it was great. Mm-hmm. It was one of my favorite moments of further. No, well, right on. But do you remember? I mean, I, I mean I, we did a lot of improvisation in further, and you know that was just. Uh, you know, and usually when it's working, that's I'm not fully, you know, like <laughs> there, not so much present anymore. I've been kind of uh, uh, taken over by uh, some other, you know, musical ancient intelligence. <laughs> it's running the show at that point. <laughs> True, but were you ever? Did you ever hold back? Because <clears throat> the difference between further and the other bands you play with, mm-hmm. you you kind of have to, to some extent, defer to Bobby and Phil, even though you're the mm-hmm. lead player. Yeah. Could that be a weird? Situation, even though you're playing with your heroes, and that's a great thing. I mean, uh, you almost don't want to be too demonstrative. Um, you know, it's hard to say. You know, so they were they had their their philosophies of, of improvisation, and uh, you know, and um, you know, I think in some ways I helped reconcile their two approaches. You know, and I was definitely, uh, you know, why they they put me in the, you know, kind of in the hot seat, as it were, and uh, and they gave me a, you know. They get a lot, a lot of genuine time at the steering wheel, as it were. But a lot of times it was more like being a student driver and they're over there with the second wheel and the brakes. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we're going this way instead. Um, and I, I'm cool with that. I was, you know, it was, you know, I was just happy that they still wanted to play together and, and hit the road and that they were writing, you know. So that's what I take away from my further experiences. I think it was the most vital, like, post-jury new song um, entity. Aside from Mickey. Mickey's was really good about new material with his bands, but yeah, for Bobby least. and Phil, you had the most <laughs> interesting Somebody repertoire. Somebody rated a song that I, that I recorded, uh, a Hunter song that I recorded with Melvin in 2003, but... <laughs> he what, that one? He, he, was know, that Strange he, World? Yeah, I don't know. That might have been something that Hunter 
let slip by accident, but some lyrics that were in a, a song called uh, American Spring. Okay. Ended up in Cut the Deck. Okay. <laughs> but and I'm not quite sure how that happened, but it's not my department. To what extent did Bobby and Phil give you ongoing feedback? Was that only early on? Like, um, it was constant. Yeah? Yeah. Hmm. No. I mean, was it, were you ever told to pull it back? or No. No, there was like a beginning, you know, there was there was like an early, uh, before we'd even played out, there was some rehearsals where they were like, okay, try try not to sound like, you know, Jerry vocally. And I'm like, well, I thought I'd... I thought I was already doing that, but I don't know how much further you want me to go. I'm trying to imagine a different singer, you know, like I would sort of go like, hmm, what would, if I try to imagine David Crosby singing this song in my head and then let my voice follow that. Because I'm a little bit, both voice and guitar, um, you know, timbrely, stylistically, I tend to just kind of follow what my head and heart feel for them for that you know and if I ever play like Jerry in a song, it's because that's that's what my heart wants in the sure. moment. You know, but you if I'm like playing, you're... yes, it's going to come out. You know, my heart's going to want to hear, uh, you know, Steve Howe. And if I'm playing Led Zeppelin, it's going to want to hear, you know, Jimmy Page. So, right. you know, so on and so forth. And all those styles are just things that, that my fingers just do. Honestly, like, you know, like, you know, 99% of electric guitar players, can, you know, will, you know, Amp and technology-wise, can basically be done with about two different rigs, you know, and everything else is fingers and intention, you know, for any player. Right. You know, the gear is uh, is relatively minimal, you know, other than you know whatever's needed to make the player happy and the sound man happy. But beyond that, it's not like, you know, it's not a big piece of the tone. <laughs> Intention reminds me of Colonel Bruce. Did you come across Colonel Bruce Hampton ever? I did. I didn't get to play with him ever, which is one of my, actually kind of one of my big musical regrets. I I was kind of, I had put the word out that I would do like a, I would do, I'd do a run with him as an intern, so to speak. I would just, just to kind of for the experience, you know, (laughs) but it didn't come together. Well, I know I do know that you were in imp- improvisation before you even picked up a guitar. I mean, even well, on violin, you were Im- into improv well, at a young age. Violin, I was I was I was trying to learn improvisation, uh, and violin. Uh, my teachers were a little uh, uh, a little perplexed as how to get me there. I had you know maybe one um, you know my freshman year of high school. I, I was sort of asking my teacher about improvisation, and uh, and his response was to throw me on a. Uh, um, like a like a teacher's lounge trio gig, you know, where I just sight read, and he'd be like, "If you get if you get behind, just make it up, just wing it, you know, like keep up with us. Don't don't try and play all the notes there. Stay with us, and if you miss some notes, don't worry about it, you know, just make right. up some new notes or whatever." And I was I did, was not quite ready for that level of jumping in, and I ended up teaching myself guitar, and. Uh, <laughs> Ending up teaching myself guitar as a as a path to learning more about improvisation. In a lot of ways, guitar has uh, has an entry to improvisation kind of baked into it in yes. the, in the tuning. Um, these sort of blues patterns and stuff where you can just you can learn a position, you can move the same position up and down the neck, and the basics of pentatonic scales and uh, stuff are just sort of come naturally. So it's like that at that point, you know, I. Was, I, I was working on guitar for a year or so before I finally got the chance to play with a bass player and drummer. And that first jam, we did like a blues improv for a half hour. 
know, I was like, oh, this is improvisation. All right. right. And you this know. is what well, I want to do for the rest of my life. It's so. still the limited level where it was sort of within the context of these blues licks and stuff. But that's the beginning of it. You know, the, the licks are not improvisation unto themselves. They're supposed to be, you're supposed to have some melodic inspiration underneath it that the licks just become ornamentations for. Uh, they're not they're not anything unto themselves the licks you know for any guitar player you know they're they're all uh they're all decorations that they're, that they're putting hopefully on a real melodic phrase and that real melodic phrase will transcend any player's style you know you can break it down to it's just you can, whether it's sung played on a flute played on a guitar you know it's it's a it's a melody idea and then uh and then it gets you know brightened up and sparkleified with some licks and some some in, some little you know, tweaks here and there, but, and then that, and that certainly is a, a personal style thing too, but, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit more into like going right for like asking the muse for the real melodies than really thinking much about the ornamental details. And the sense I get from you is that in the mid nineties, you're a player in Chicago and uh, let's make it clear, your musical lexicon goes way beyond the Grateful mm -hmm. Dead. So when you're deciding to make a career step with the Dark Star Orchestra, which I know initially was just a weekly thing. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you made... I mean, I already had... A, we all already had careers in Dark Star Orchestra when we started. That was the thing, is we were all full-time musicians already, playing in bands that did mostly original stuff. I had a group right. called Wingnut. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the keyboard player played with a group called Brother Brother. Uh, a couple of the guys were actually playing in dead cover bands. You know, uh, there was uh, one guy who was playing with a band called Jerry's Kids, and... Uh, uh, another guy had been in Uncle John's band, Dropout, <laughs> so right. to speak. That was your first dead cover man, right? No. And you played mandolin, or was that the uh, No, mandolin? Uncle John's band was was a long-running project that originally was founded by uh, the guy who's now uh, a, a big guy over at Paradigm Entertainment, Oh, uh, Jonathan Levine. Oh, I know uh, that He name. started, John yeah, Jonathan Levine of Paradigm started this band called Uncle John's Band when he was in college in Carbondale, Illinois. Wow. And uh, in the early 80s. And it had been through a lot of player iterations. And, the, and the, 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 you know, like this other guy, John Graham, had joined pretty early on within the first year or so of the band's inception. And he kind of became the band leader up to the mid-90s when he finally decided to quit Uncle John's band. And they started looking for other guitarists, and I joined. And um, before that, I played with a band called Hairball Willie. That's what you played you know. mandolin in, right? No, I, I played uh, guitar and electric violin mostly, and okay. and I sang a little bit, but I, but there was a lead singer in the band that didn't play any other instruments, so he really took you know the bulk of the lead lead vocal duties. Yeah, and nothing else uh, I do. <laughs> and he was, and he's a prolific lyricist, and I still do a, you know pretty much all the songs he and I wrote together, and a couple of the other songs from Hairball Willie that I really love that he oh. wrote lyrics for. You know, that's cool. The Hanging of John Collins was originally on a on the Justifying Gravity album, and then I did a kind of a little bit of a rearrangement on it, um, which I found interesting because a, a retired admiral named John Collins passed away in Alexandria, not far from. Where you uh, lived about a year ago? Did you yeah, know that? No, well, uh, this, this John Collins was the first uh, the first person to be hung in the county of Kane in Illinois, the first person to to get a state execution. Okay, and it's a bit of a it's it's actually kind of intended as a bit of a protest, uh, you know, against death penalty kind of song. Is it uh, justice well deserving or revenge a little late? 
And you have a version of that on the newest. On, yeah, on the road. And it's also, you know, as I said, sung, sung by Eric uh, on uh, Justifying Gravity, recorded back in 1992, which is the first album I produced. You know, they, you know. They nominated me producer, or maybe I fought for it, but they and they agreed, but something like that. <laughs> and I ended up, you know, being the producer on that recording. Several of us had, you know, studio experience at that point. So, but I'm fascinated by the decision points along your career. I think that's one of the interesting things well, you've had to make some tough decisions. Yeah, well, at some point, a couple, you know, the Eric quit uh, Hairball Willie to to start a new project with the other guitar player and and he with gave us you know gave us his blessing on continuing under the name and everything and and he and I stayed friendly the other guitar player that went with him we had a little bit of a, a you know uh, uh, I mean we're friends now you know we had a little bit of a it was mostly artistic just disagreements and uh, you know but uh, and unfortunately they didn't really uh, run with it. <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, but after a year of, <clears throat> a year of kind of running Hairball Willie, I kind of just didn't feel like, well, I mean, like, cause I didn't, I wasn't a founding member either, you know, I, but I, here I was sort of band leader, lead singer, lead guitarist. And, and, uh, and I just felt I kind of wanted to start something, um, well, ultimately start something on my own you know, start a, a fresh project to do original music with. But at that point came an opportunity to join Uncle John's band. And uh, so I, I joined and, uh, you know, and they were kind of a little bit at that point going for lean and mean quartet, you know. Song oriented. Um, uh, I was playing jam oriented, but it, they didn't want, they were, you know, they were really kind of focused on, <laughs> I don't want to be uh, critical of anyone, but they were a bit focused on the income. And I was kind of like, you know, at some point after a year, I was kind of like, guys, we we need to add a second guitarist. And, you know, we're hitting a wall with this. This is, you know, it's, we were doing original stuff and we were doing off-menu stuff. So it was kind of like, uh, you know, it was still, uh, still embodied. One of the things, one of my uh, takeaway lessons from uh, DSO, which is just that the Grateful Dead always always had songs in their shows that we didn't know what songs they were because they weren't on a record yet. You know, that unless we were connected to a taper scene, you know. That's what you mean by off-menu? Yeah, exactly. You know, like, they were always, you know, working in new covers. People didn't wouldn't necessarily recognize, because we didn't have the internet to go look up the, hear 50 different versions of that song when, as soon as we got home, you know. Right. Um, but, uh, and, uh, and the, you know, unless you were connected to the taper scene and you were getting tapes from that tour, you might be able to hear that song. And it would, you'd get a tape that said question mark in the set list like I don't know what the song is you know enjoying the or ride what's like, that or whatever they could recognize as a hook from it you know right. so yeah, I will get by <laughs> um, but uh, so then the, the dark, there's a weekly thing that Dark Star yeah, starts yes. as a weekly well, right well, same, well I ended up leaving Uncle John's band because they didn't want to add the player because I really felt like okay if we add another player and maybe add a second drummer again you know we will get we will It'll grow. It'll, it'll work. Become we'll a just, thing. The people, you know, it's sort of build it and they will come kind of attitude, yeah. you know. Uh, anyway, they weren't having it, so I, you know, that's when I launched Wingnut. You know, I left Uncle John's band after a year, and uh, you know, just probably because I didn't think they were doing it right, and there was only one other guy in the band that was really what I, you know, call a deadhead. Not to put down the other two guys in the band because they were excellent musicians, but uh, but there's a certain ethos, right? And they, you know, and they, you know, they and they had, you know, there's like, like I, you know, I think, you know, from '72 to '74, Bill Kreutzmann was the greatest drummer in the world, <laughs> you know, 
Um, but, uh, you know, but, you know, his idea was that it was old fashioned. This drummer's idea was that Billy's playing was old fashioned and he was more into the guy from Dave Matthews band and all that. I'm like, ah, whatever. Um, who is a great drummer. We will say, yeah, yeah. just a different ethos. Right. And, uh, so, you know, and I had, you know, while I was, uh, the first time I saw a dead bass at a party, I thought, well, this would be a great, this would be a fun way for a bunch of deadheads to learn songs. You know, like, let's pick a set list and learn all the songs on the set list so we can jam it together, you know. And uh, and then with Hairball Willie, we did once, uh, like, a second set as a contest. You know, we did, it was just a fun little gimmick thing. We played, a, you know, a, a second set from a Grateful Dead show and asked people guess to guess what show it was. And was it Cornell? Won, like, a stuffed animal and a CD. And, <laughs> uh, and uh uh, and then I thought, well, this might be a fun thing to do, like, a, you know, someday, like a once a year or once a month band where I get the, the best guys in Chicago together to really do this right. It wasn't really Hairball Willie's, you know, department to go into that as a full time thing. We we had, you know, 30 original songs, you know, in our repertoire and, um, and we're actively writing, you know, more material. And uh, uh, so, you know, that, then, you know, and I, I had networked around when I joined Uncle John's band the bass player you know introduced me to this other guitar player who'd, who'd been fired from Uncle John's tw- band twice for belligerence under two different leaders two different band leaders he'd been fired twice wow and uh, but uh, the bass player thought you know that still thought he was you know like the guy in Chicago who had the Bob Weir thing you know totally totally rocking and, and that was Mike Murat and Kevin Rosen was the bass player um and uh, uh, so we had a jam, you know, in his basement before I even played my first gig with Uncle John's band. You know, Kevin kind of invited me over. Like, Let's have this little jam and the three of us. And we just, you know, we went through like all the heavy hitters in the whole catalog and was, were able to just wing our way through, you know, help slip Franklin's. Well, Franklin's is easy, but. Um, Slipknot's not easy. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, um, Sailor Saint. You know, uh, a whole bunch of, you know, the trickier tunes that we were able, you know, act without really <laughs> trying, we were able to just kind of walk our way through. And uh, and Mike immediately wanted, like, oh, forget Uncle John's band. Let's, let's the three of us start a band right now. And I'm kind of like, ah, I just got I just got an audition of my first full-time gig. I think I'm not going to make any waves yet, you know? Right. <laughs> and, you know, he, he maybe had some, Mike maybe had some uh, bitterness towards the keyboard player who fired him. And so, um, so, but then, you know, but we had some, you know, we, we sort of uh, continued to have, you know, every few months we'd get together and jam with a different drummer, trying to look for different players to like, cause I was like, I've always kind of been like, well, we gotta, we gotta have a drum. We gotta have a drummer who knows what they're doing. Um, like it's almost, almost the first crucial step in a, doing a Grateful Dead thing, you know? The sneakers have to be in the dryer just so. Well, it's just that to be that you know, it has to be, uh, you know, there's a lot of garage band 101 approach where the drummer is just like the metronome that everybody follows. And, uh, and, and to me, like a big piece of Grateful Dead music is that it's played more like a bluegrass band or like a chamber ensemble or an African drumming ensemble. There's not one person that, that everyone follows. Right. You collectively create a pulse that just takes over. And there's some drummers that get that, and there's some drummers that don't. I think there are bands that go all the way to number one on the Billboard charts without ever getting past Garage Band 101, you know, rhythm arrangement. And, 
that's fine, you know, but but not for Grateful Dead music. <laughs> is this something about... In my opinion, yeah. Playing behind the beat with the dead music? Nah, and that if playing, the beat... It's playing collectively on, you know, on trying to play collectively on the beat. The beat's something the band dances around collectively. It isn't right. something that the drummer defines and everybody else follows. You know? Sure. Um, but when it's a big monster of a beat, then you can play behind it and actually kind of push the music along, right? Or no? Uh, I don't know that it's... I mean, there's behind, there's in front, there's all kinds of things. It's more like, you know, just recognizing where you're landing and whether it's working or not, you know. Um, Yeah, I don't know that... But, yeah, it's it's actually... I I kind of uh, struggle a little bit that I feel like the drummers in the the GarageBand 101 camp, when I play with them, they tend to hear me as trying to push the tempo. Because I play on top of the beat. Because I think a soloist should be should actually, you know, in order to create excitement, you play a lot, just a little bit in front of the beat. Mm-hmm. You don't play behind the beat. Okay. You play behind the beat, it sounds like you're following. You know? Cool. And that's what a lot of drummers are used to hearing from a guitar player, and it could still sound fine in the final mix, you know? Okay. Um, but there's an energy, you know, that uh, you know, is going for him. But, you know, anyway, so uh, eventually, uh, you know, eventually uh, I got, uh, you know, uh, a mutual friend of uh, of me and uh, of this keyboard player Scott Larned, who I'd heard about but never played with in Chicago. Um, God rest his soul. And uh, he, uh, 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 the mutual friend was this uh, Tiny Doffner had a band called uh, Jahari's Window, and they, some of them were leaving. And he called me and Scott to fill in for. Uh, 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 to some players that were quitting, and he thought, you know, he ended up deciding to to, to wrap the band up and finish the shows with the with the original guys. But in the process, Scott and I, you know, started talking, and he had, uh, you know, he had a, a friend, uh, or he was friends with Ray Quinn, who's a club owner of uh, Martyrs, and he had been a fixture as both a musician and a, a club owner. Uh, production member of various, you know, Shubas and Park West. And um, he had a club called Otis's that, that like I saw Aquarium Rescue Unit in. I saw, Ooh. you know. Um, but so Martyrs was his new club and he was looking for a Tuesday night house band. And, uh, and, and we were pretty much like, a, you know, at that point, a, a, a dead cover band minus a keyboard player ready to, to take a gig. <laughs> So, so you know, summer of '97, it fell together, and uh, you know, uh, and it just took off really, really fast. So we are Tuesday. We started Tuesday nights the second Tuesday of November, and uh, uh, back in '97, and by you know, by our fifth show, we were we had pretty much were selling the place out, and by by Christmas, we had to line out the door, people. Standing outside in the freezing cold, waiting for people to leave after first set so they could get in and see the second set. <laughs> um, yeah. So. But you know, at some point, you decided to make. And then, and then we decided, all right, maybe. And then we started to get an offer to play the Park West, and then we started getting offers to play, you know, New York City and uh, you know San Francisco, and and we're like, I guess we, I guess we're going to make a run for it. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, the closest I've ever been physically to Bob Dylan mm-hmm. while he's performing was Park West. You know how it's uh, raised on the left? Yeah. My one miracle show in my life uh, was at the Park West, seeing uh, 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 Robert Hunter and Tom Constantin. Oh, wow. In uh, 1990. 
Yeah. They, they, were, did they a toured tour. together yeah. to promote the Box of Rain book. Very cool. But so you were a composer mm-hmm. and you love improvisation. So while this Dark Star Orchestra thing seemed like a great thing, you, you must have had some reservations because you weren't going to be able to play well, your own. And, and even a, though there was improv, you you were always going to know where you're going. Well, part of the part of the thing of doing the set list was that it, it it meant there was a good excuse to do drums in space every night. Right, get a and break. To me, that was like uh, you know the permission to have like ten ten to twenty minutes every night to do whatever the hell I felt like. Right, is is a fair trade off for not performing my own songs. <laughs> so. And honestly, I never felt different. Like, basically, when I play my own songs, I still feel like I'm covering a song I wrote. Live <laughs> performance and composition are completely different animals. Right. Um, just. But uh, were there some shows that you knew so intimately that you would even try to replicate the improv, the, what was originally improv? Or was it mostly no. just oh, play never. the set list? No, in I mean, the occasionally spirit. there'd be like a, you know, if we, if we could remember it, there might be a standout, like, uh, interesting bit or something. Like you've ever it wasn't did ten- like we went out of our way to try and learn shit. It's, right, we right. Just, it'd be like we all would listen to tapes. And we, you know, and it, uh, I used to try and explain it as like, a, it wasn't so much like we're trying to do a show note for note, it was more like what if they played the same set list the next day? Right. What if, the, what if for some reason, you know, and so, so it's like we're playing the set list with already an experience of how they did it once. And we're trying to do it the way, if they were to do the same set list again the next day, how would they have done it? The, the way I would explain it to people is mm-hmm. that you, what you were best at was capturing the spirit of the era, whatever era you were playing, you would capture that spirit. Yeah, that, that's, that's something we would go for too. And some of that was, some of that was just that we all listened to it. And if we all provided the, the, con- the contextual clues for each other, you know the, the the guitar tones, the, whether it's one drummer, two drummers, female vocalists or not. You know, organ or not. Um, you know, would give us the contextual clues to just reactivate. You know, I don't know. I mean, I heard. You know, I don't. I don't know where it was coming from. How much of it was just stuff we heard over time? Um, it was definitely about like you know. I, mean, I saw about fifty Grateful Dead shows, and and I was always about like there's a feeling that I want to like. To sh- that, I, that I feel blessed to be able to put into music and you know it's it's more about like trying to get to that feeling than about recreating any particular details you know? do you remember when you first met Rob Eaton yeah were you familiar with him as a taper because he was a very uh, well-known taper before I was I was not uh, familiar with him as a taper I kind of heard him more you know was more aware of him more as you know uh, you know the guy who engineered a whole bunch of Pat Metheny albums and, you know, had, uh, had worked with Madonna on Like a Virgin and, um, you know, worked with Stevie Ray Vaughan and Amazing. Bob Dylan and Keith Richards, you know. Oh, I didn't know the Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. And I don't think he was like a lead engineer on that, but he was <laughs> he was in the studio enough to have some interesting stories, which I'm not going to repeat here. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful with Dylan, right? <laughs> um, so at some point... <clears throat> Uh, around 2009, mm-hmm. further plays in September, and I mean, was there were were you torn? I mean, you knew that here. Well, these... I mean, at that point, I'd done. I'd I'd been in DSO for uh, almost 13 years. We'd done I don't know 1,500 shows, um, and I'd started to you know I was starting to feel that lesson being learned in my body about like, well, where's the you know. 
I mean, I always, where's the surprise, you know? And I, I was always one of the champions of like never telling anybody what the set list is in advance. There'd be occasional promoters who'd be like, what if you advertised in advance what show you're doing? I'm like, no. Oh my God. That's, no, that was that's one the most... one last thing we have left as far as like, Surprise, having yes. the element of surprise for people, you know? Oh, it was so fun trying to figure out. I would be, I'd, I'd go to your shows, I'd text people, be like, okay, we got Stranger, we got Cumberland, what I mean, is this? A, you know, the, other, the other thing I was, I was always a champion of was playing the extra encore. Yeah. You know, the filler yeah. on the tape. Some Kingfish Deep Cut or something. Or just whatever, or just some yeah. other, you know, just so, another song that wasn't on that set list that people will definitely not have any idea what song we're going to do. You know? But was that not born out of a cease and desist? Like, weren't the dead, and they were actually nice about it, that if you just do the show, that it's intellectual property. But if you add no, another there song... Was no, there was never a cease and desist. Okay. It was always about me wanting to be like, well, the encore that we're playing is part of the show. Right. It's not an encore. It's part of the show. If people want an encore, then we play an encore. Wow, I didn't. I had heard and, that. And it was, here's a song that, that you're not going to know, you know, even if you figured out what show it is. Because there'd be people with... I mean, you know, that's what what Dead Bass was for. You get a tape with the label fell off. Yeah. And so you can play the tape, and you here's the here's the first song, and you look up the first song in the Dead yeah. Bass, and look at every time it was the first time played, right. and you look at the second <laughs> song, and now you go through and you see, oh, yeah. wait, which one's the, which? When did they play that second song? And you look up the second song, and by the third, honestly, the Grateful Dead, but their set lists were so unique that by three songs, ninety percent of the set lists you'd had you could figure out what show right. it was by the right. third song. Unless it was Bucket Sugary Walking or something. Usually you could figure right. it out. And then it'd be the fourth song that you'd be able to figure it out by, you know? But you knew that if you went to further, that your gig wouldn't be there when you got back at Dark Star. And you knew all along further, they told you that this was temporary. This is not a permanent gig, right? I mean, it was going until it was going. And they asked us to clear our schedule for 2010. Did, were you salaried or were you paid per gig? We paid per gig. Interesting. Um, you know, with, you know, with an option, you know, with right up front an option is, you know, the, with, uh, it'll, you know, after a year, if we're still going, it'll go up. I think it went until basically Bobby, you know, had his moment and Phil got to the point where he really didn't like traveling on tour buses anymore. Yeah. You mentioned somewhere that Bobby doesn't like playing multiple nights in the same room. What is I, that? You know, uh, I think he pref I think he likes touring. I mean, I, particularly, I, I, you know, I don't think. I mean, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but you know, I, my, you know, he made it pretty clear in a lot of places that that playing multiple nights in New York City is not not his drug. First in New York City, <laughs> yes, the, the city that never sleeps and makes damn sure you don't either. Right, right. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't want to over mystify it, but I've seen psychic moments from Bobby, and I don't have a hard time believing that he could be kind of sensitive to high population, like, concentration zones, you know. Gotcha. Um, he doesn't live in a high-rise in San Francisco. He lives in a little, you know, in a little spot in Mill Valley that's hard to get to and is quiet and has, you know, trees on the mountainside, you know. <laughs> he doesn't even wear closed-toed shoes in the winter, right? <laughs> well, I didn't do that for a long time either, but whatever. <laughs> so I was a stocks and socks guy for a long time. <laughs> Let's go to the Fox Theater, though. I mean, because, okay. come on, you're about to walk on stage with Bob Weir and Phil Lesh for the first time. And I love Deadheads. I'm a lifelong Deadhead. Yeah. There's a lot of great about Deadheads. But we can be scrutinous. I mean, yeah. were you, to what extent were you nervous about, and to what extent were you excited? And and did you choose Birdsong as the first song for you to do lead vocal, I didn't, or did they? they? They chose everything. I thought it was Althea, actually, but I don't know. I think it was Birdsong, yeah. which is like, wow. 
Yeah. How to jump in the fire. <laughs> I mean, gosh, what, do you remember that night still vividly or no? I mean, I, I, you know, I remember parts, but it's, you know. Did one original, right? Welcome to the right. dance. We were, and that's the thing is we were working on new, new original songs before we even played our first show. That's amazing. That's great. Uh, so... So, but it was after that show, like, you know, I don't know whether there was a, you know, like I said, I remember a huge audience response from Althea. And after the show, Phil comes up to me and says, like, well, you just sing however you want. <laughs> That's <laughs> so cool. Don't, 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 you don't, just don't try, you know, don't try and do anything. Just do, do it. It feels natural and let it fly. That's your voice. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So. I think so. Many I mean, look- I did, you know, I did honestly, like, uh, you know, I, I went to, uh, 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 you know, as a sort of peripheral member of a, of a scene called Fire Tribe, and I went to one of their festival events. They're, they're sort of like on the outside, they look like rock and roll festivals, but they're more like uh, the event is a uh, midnight to dawn, basically drum and dance around a fire. You know, that's that's actually very improvisational. Uh, and I went to one of the you know, and there's usually a sacred intentionality to it. The different communities that put these on. Each have a different spin. Some's a little more neo pagan. Some's a little more uh, 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 alchemical. You know, some are a little more freestyle. Um, but uh, uh, this one had an opportunity to. Uh, there was a, a sort of a group thing to write something on a piece of birch bark and throw it in a fire as something you want to discard uh, to further your growth. And I actually you know, wrote down my vocal impression of Jerry Garcia as something I want to burn in a fire to, you know, to, to, uh, um, you know, to cast to, aside. Yeah. I guess Put in the past. Of, yeah. Put in the rear view mirror. And, you know, and I've, and I've just kind of felt in retrospect is anybody who's going to, you know, anybody that sings, you know, uh, Garcia tunes and, and gets close to the, the phrasing, right. is going to sound like Jerry to people. It's, I mean, the people, those of us who, you know, who loved it enough to go see, you know, lots of shows, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of burned in. You know, it's like Mountain Girl said when she saw uh, TSO, she's like, I'm hardwired to like this. You know, and that was the way we all were in the band, too, you know. And uh, so I think other people that are hardwired to like it, you're going to kind of hear what you what you hope to hear before you hear what's actually happening even, you know, and that's fine too. People are going to, you know, people are going to project onto it. And I just sort of learned to accept, you know. So when you're writing with Bobby, you, you, you had Hunter lyrics mostly. Uh, well, there was a bunch of Hunter lyrics. Yeah. And there was, uh, there were, you know, some other, there was this other lyricist stuff in there, but we, yeah, we worked on, um, we worked on a couple songs that just seemed to go into Bobby's mothball files. And I thought they were, I was kind of hoping they'd show up on, uh, on the cowboy record, but he, right. you know, like maybe he just forgot about them. We're talking about like maybe big... he decided they weren't really for him or something. And uh, um, so I worked on one of them back in January called um, uh, Midnight Bay, uh, and because it just had a, a, a deeply, uh, deeply emotional relationship to events I was going through at the time, and uh, um. And started playing that one with uh, the Wingman, with uh, John Cadlesic Band. And then, then the other song uh, was called So Blue. And uh, That wouldn't be the record. No. No, no I've heard that. That's the one that I, that I, that I emailed here. Ah. So Blue is... Uh, We're going to hear it at the end of the episode? Is... Uh, Robert Lyrics? Uh, yeah, Robert Hunter Lyrics. New ones that have never been recorded before. And, um, uh, you know, it's kind of a slow... Uh, 
this song of love lost that I that I did up in a nice kind of kind of uh, cowboy loping country feel and uh, uh, and I haven't played that well, I've played that one solo a few times but I haven't haven't worked that one up with a band yet other than that uh, last month. Uh, I was in San Francisco with uh, a few days to kill, hung out at Jay's place, and uh, we went over to his studio and just burned a real quick demo. Uh, you know, it's all first take. First, you know, I, we did uh, the rhythm guitar and the drums live together and just used the first take. I added uh, some bass and some lead guitar to it and a uh, lead vocal, and we got it all done in the space of about 90 minutes. <laughs> and then he mixed it down and sent it to me. So I've been kind of, I'm kind of digging it. There's some, it's, it's raw. There's little mistakes. There's things, you know, but, uh, but it's, it's got a certain something for it being all, everything's just first take. Yeah. Well, Seven Hills of Gold, Bobby never really found his voice in it, but I think you could sing that one beautifully and maybe tweak it a little. Would that be fair game? I'd be open. I'd be open to, I've I've thought a a number of times about um, picking up some of those. uh, Colors um, of the Rain. I love Colors of the Rain. Um, who wrote High in the Mountain? That's like an old one, right? Or the, the Mountain Song? Well, Mountain Song's from the Paro days, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the the hook, the sort of main chorus is from the Paro days. It was just sort of like a stoned jam on three chords that they, you know, want to let the mountains be my home. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, Who fleshed it out, mostly? I, you know, I'm trying to... I, I always forget which son, whether it was Graham or Brian... That wrote the, the the verse lyrics for that. Is that right? Yes. Let's, no. They did a great job yeah, with that. Yeah, and then Phil, uh, and you know, it's uh, sort of started with that chorus and built out some verses, and then he wrote a whole like uh, intro prologue to it that we played. Uh, uh, that's a cool song. I mean, I, you know, there was what else? You know, there was a Mooly Gooly. You even had a verse in that one. Yep, and. Um, Wow. There is High on the Mountain. <laughs> well, High on the Mountain is an old folk song. Right. Doesn't Del McCoury play that or yeah, somebody? Yeah, he played lots of people play it. Okay. Del McCoury is who I first heard do it. And I played it in my, you know, I played it in, I had a bluegrass project. Um, I've had a few bluegrass projects, but one, you know, one I started this, you know, right around the same time as DSO was the Dime Store String Band. Okay. You know, it was supposed to be like, you know, this is an intentional DS you know, but instead of the orchestra, the string band, you know, Dime Store instead of Dark Star, but DSS. Um, and uh, and you know, and they're still they're still going. Oh. Also, I think they've kind of become a bit. You know, I don't think they play full time, but um, but it's still the same core guys. Uh, but we would do uh, you know for a little while we were doing. Um, but anyway, I don't go off on a tangent. But we played um, High on a Mountain. We played and we kind of followed Del McCurry's arrangement of it yeah i'm one of those guys who like really liked when it i, I understand you got to play the dead songs and that's what a lot of people are coming but i really like the like dead and company it's one of my biggest reservations of course they're killing it at times but 90 percent of the material they're playing was in the dead's repertoire at the end yeah. that's that makes it less interesting to me even though the visuals are great and and mare took his time and really learned how to play the stuff right mm-hmm. i respect him for that but you guys further and the ryan adams material i mean they were like the bartering lines let it ride Magnolia Mountain. I mean, you they, yeah. right here in Charlotte. You crush yeah, Nobody Girl. Really, the second time you ever played it, you Phil crushed really it. loved uh, uh, the Ryan Adams stuff a lot. Um, Do you still play I was stuff? completely unfamiliar with it when you I were, came yeah? into it. I yeah, was not a Ryan Adams fan coming into it or any by any means. But uh, you became. There's one. a couple songs I like 
you know, I, I, he was still a little bit like, you know, like I never really felt like uh, Nobody Girl was appropriate for a Grateful Dead stage. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, you're a nobody girl, you know, it's a, it's a put down song, you know. It's sure. it's a great song for a new, for a dark New York City cabaret, <laughs> for a singer songwriter to bare their soul about how 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 they're still mad at a, at some woman, but for me to belt out "You're a Nobody Girl" <laughs> on a you know over a you know hundred thousand watt PA system for ten thousand people, <laughs> this does not feel right. Which you did quite well in Charlotte that night. Look it up, people. It's yeah. the second time they ever played it. But Peaceful Valley, on the other hand, lent like itself Valley. well. I like Magnolia Mountain. Do any yeah. of those? Do you still play any of those? Eh, not so much. You know, it's not because of all his stuff or anything. It's just... I don't know. It's, I mean, I, you know, it's whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's not my thing. But you're still running. Did you ever meet Hunter? You know, that's another another big regret of mine. I never actually got to meet Hunter. Um, you know, I got to work on songs with Greg Anton in the mix also. And uh, and I still play, you know, uh, uh, Giving Me the Business, and uh, which is a song Hunter wrote for John Lee Hooker. That that uh, that John never that John passed away before we're making into a song, and, uh, and there was this other song, "American Spring," which apparently the lyrics were, you know, on Jerry's desk, you know, in the early '90s, but he hadn't gotten to it yet, uh, and uh, and then passed around and stuff, and then eventually uh, Greg had, Greg made a really rudimentary demo with a, a female vocalist, and then I kind of fleshed it out and expanded the melody and did some chord substitutions and whatever. But uh, Could you bring f- ideas to further cover song choices or was it all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, brought, I mean, um, both, um, uh, you know, Fool in the Rain was just sort of a special, like we did it like uh, two or three times or something, but that was my suggestion. And uh, Any Road became a staple. Yes. Which is, uh, in which I still play, you know, with all, all my projects. Yes, you crushed that. That's a really good for your voice. Really good song. And it's not one we've heard 100,000 times either. You right. know what I mean? It's it underappreciated. Kind of, and it kind of feels like some like a song in the family of like Bertha or Touch of Grey or Run for the Roses. You know, it's kind of got that kind of rhythmic. You see your favorite Beatle? Yeah, if, if pressed, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember George doing Harrison, yeah. one song? I probably learned more George Harrison songs over the years than, than any other Beatles song, so, but. They're good for your voice. Well, thanks. But do you remember the one song thing you guys did? You, you like opened a show with the first song of Abbey Road, and then the next night you did a second. You oh yeah, song. We, when we learned the whole Abbey Road cycle, we kind of teased our way into it by doing like one, like leaking one song at a time for a while before we did the whole. In the sequence that it was on the album too. Right, right. Whose idea was that? That sounds uh, like that weird. Was probably that was probably Bob or Phil or <laughs> might have been Jill or Matt Bush. I don't know. But you handed you know, me... Uh, I mean, at that point, they, you know, Phil had been doing Phil and Friends for a long time and picked all the set lists. Bob had been doing Rat Dog for a long time, was doing all the set lists. And a lot of, honestly, and further, they, they, they both kind of handed it to their respective number ones. Jill and, and Matt. Jill and Matt. And then, I mean, they, did, they gave final approval, and then they proved each other. They would take turns picking set lists. Yeah. Bob Which sometimes Phil. they were great set lists. Sometimes it felt like there were songs on ping pong balls and they were pulling them out of a, you know, like the lottery or something. But well, and, and I, you know, the, if I could have interjected some more song choice stuff, I would have, I would have actually pushed the new material a little harder. You know, both to get both so people could hear it and so it could evolve quicker. Yes. Um, but uh, colors uh, the wasn't, rank. wasn't my wasn't my baby to make those decisions. So colors could have been a monster for sure. Did you mention John Lee Hooker real quick? Did you ever talk to Bobby about working with Willie Dixon? Eternity is weird Dixon. Uh, you know, he, he uh, he's a 
Um, when we did, we did, we didn't really do Eternity no. much. I think we did. We tried it once or twice, but he would tease it before trucking sometimes. Yeah. That little yeah. intro thing you do, he would like reference it. Yeah, he still does that with Wolf Brothers, and now they've started doing it. But you also mentioned the mix. And that's, that's probably a, an accidental thing. I, I doubt that he intends it as a as an eternity tease. Sure, it doesn't matter. Because they're really different keys, actually. It, it is what it is, though, yeah. whether or not intentional. Yeah. <laughs> Fan side, baby. Yeah, 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 that's all right. But you mentioned the mix, which is uh, appropriate mm-hmm. because you're here with uh, Melvin yeah. and the JGB band. And the mix was something you did on the side during Dark Star. A lot of those yeah. guys were on the West Coast, right? Weren't they? Uh, we did some East Coast tours, too. Yeah. But that band was was happening. Who, who It was you and Melvin, and who else? Uh, well, Greg Anton on Greg, drums from yes. Zero, yeah, you know who brought in, who is a really close friend of Robert Hunter's, right? One of the few, and uh, uh, and then uh, uh, Kevin Rosen, who was a bass player, was the founding bass player, and then he 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 quit before we started touring DSO, but then he he joined he had uh, joined back in by that point, and uh, um, and then originally Jeff Pivar. Oh, CPR uh, this was a project that um, uh, this was a project that uh, was kind of instigated by a guy, uh, like a booking agent slash manager guy in Colorado, and who who named it. And in some ways, he was a guy who he had a rivalry with uh, with Michael Gaiman and the the Jazz Is Dead scene, you know, who Pivar was also playing with. And at some point, he he made and he, he went over all our heads and made the executive decision in quotes there to uh, fire Jeff Pivar, which is about the stupidest thing I've ever heard, honestly. Yeah, that's crazy. It was, uh, but uh, but by the time we got reco- signed to a recording contract, Pivar wasn't involved anymore, so he's he's not on the record. But uh, but the first you know year and a half of of touring we did, you know, he was he was at all of them, and he he brought in some fun stuff too. Yeah, and if I recall correctly, that's the first time you kind of played your hand that you were also a Fish fan. Wasn't there some Fish material in there? I started covering Fish songs in 1992 with Hairball Willie. Okay, I didn't <laughs> know that. We were doing Bouncing Around the Room, you know, while Fish was still playing venues like The Variety and Sleeping Monkey and uh, there's a couple other songs, but If I Could... Bouncing's a very interesting song. Yeah. I mean, you have to be just so, right? The rhythms kind of intertwine and then come back together, right? Well, yeah, and there's some really specific, yeah, there's really specific parts that make the rhythm come together. And uh, and it was actually part of my my counter audition with uh, Uncle John's band uh, was to just sort of checking our musical communication abilities. You know, I just sort of taught them on the fly the code of, of bouncing around the room, both instrumentally and vocally. And I was just curious to see how far they... You know, how much we could go just by talking about stuff and, and hitting it. And we pulled it off. So I'm like, yeah, you know, that became part of why. Right on. You know. Do you remember uh, when and you... We, and we played it and we played Bouncing Around the Room in Uncle John's band, too. And they were they were hesitant until the first time we played it and the room blew up. And we're like, <laughs> we were like, attempted, okay, we're sold. We were attempted to <laughs> we drop ended it. up doing tons. After I left the band, they ended up doing a ton more fish. But why not DSO, one of the bonus songs, throw a fish song? I think people would freak uh, yeah, it wasn't that. But the, the band was there wasn't enough fish fans in the band to make that like, you know, there were some diehard anti, like there were some fish haters right. in DSO. Yeah, fairly well as <laughs> until they sat play. in with it. I mean, that was you know, that, which is pretty unfair because I think our first big national break uh, was uh, Fishman. Yeah, you know, early in 1998, um, played a whole know, show, right? Came in, did I think, I think maybe did a second set, something like that. Jumped in uh, uh, on one of the kits for a second set. And 
Um, yeah, and I had gotten to know them pretty early on. I went to the Great Went as a guest of John Fishman. Oh. Um, that far back, you know. That's um, cool. So, um, uh, the, you know, a woman who's still um, Fishman's nanny uh, was a roommate of mine back then in Chicago, <laughs> you know. Wow. So, so did you... Um, did you change as a player playing with Melvin? It seemed like the mix you were more allowed to play like yourself than with Dark Star, and it seemed like your personality was allowing is choosing to. Okay, the music. You know, the only person who, stop, who is not allowing me was me. Just okay. as a, I mean, uh, to me, like improvis, you know, like I don't know. I've, I use this metaphor before, and not a lot of people get it. But you, you know, you get a piece of paper and you draw a circle. You know, uh, look, thinking about places you can be on this piece of paper. You know, there's inside the circle and there's outside the circle. But so there's a boundary. But how many places can you, you know, how many places can you be inside that circle? There's still an infinite number of places you can be inside a boundary. Like a restriction is is an artificial thing that you do, and and all music has restrictions. If you, you know, I, I had made up a uh, a little slogan that I've turned out uh, that I had accidentally paraphrased Bach. Which is, I said, like, music is everything between the sine wave and white noise. And uh, and Bach actually said, like, almost the exact same thing at one point. Wow. Like, music is everything between the persistent, you know, pers- a persistent tone and and the crash of the waves or something like that. You know, it's like... <laughs> that must have been a good um, feeling, yeah, satisfying, kind of, justifying. It was kind of funny, like, syn- syn- uh, synchronicity, but... Uh, but, you know, but, you know, and within that, you know, you have, you know, if you're going to stay within a key, that's a limitation. You know, uh, if you're going to, if you're going to stay within 12 tones, that's a limitation, you know. Um, these are all limitations. So, like, to stay within a character was just a limitation that I just enjoyed working with. It wasn't like I didn't feel confined. Within that, within those boundaries was still an infinite number of notes to play, you know. <laughs> so. But Melvin came from gospel. And the Jerry yeah, he Band. Came from Jer- he came from Jerry Band. He also came from, I think, Elvin Bishop. Right, yeah. Before Jerry. So there's some improv there. Not a like lot of improv with Jerry Band. blues kind of idiomatic improv, but yeah. But Don't Let Go, we get improv with Jerry Band. Not a lot else. Maybe a little simple twist. Yeah. So did you uh, find... Well, Lonesome and A Long Way From Home right. would get into group improv, and so would uh, After Midnight would get into group improv. Right, okay, yeah. Sometimes Helena yeah. Rigby. Well, there's A Lonesome and A Long Way From Home from 1978. It's 20 minutes long, and it's just but that's a Merle. masterpiece. That's Merle, right? Well, it was Keith, actually. Really? I haven't heard that one. Keith and yeah. Donna era. No, Merle was... Uh, all the projects with Merle were sort of named things. Legion of Mary, Reconstruction. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Garcia band was Keith and Donna, 76 to 79. And uh, with Maria Moldauer coming in and out. And Maria was the link between Melvin and Jerry, right? Um, I don't know... No, I don't think so. Like Mel- the story Melvin told me was that he, you know, I mean, he was a teenager and he got invited to a jam and he wasn't even told who was going to be at this jam, and he just played at this jam and he met this this you know this bearded guy with glasses there. It's like, hey, I really like your playing. <laughs> he didn't know who he was. He was like, I don't know who this guy is, you know. But then, bam, there's a great uh, there's a great publicity shot in one of the Jerry Garcia band music books. Uh, with the Jerry Garcia band right after Melvin joined. And he's, he, I mean, he looks like a teenager. He's was, uh, a great afro. <laughs> well, the one thing I'd love to say to Melvin is you have this fan base <clears throat> that generally doesn't like repeats night to night. Right. But one of the most glaring and famous exceptions ever is mm-hmm. Lucky Old Son and Jerry Band because of what he would do, because that would yeah. be his moment. 
and people who did not mind Lucky Old Son every night. No. Uh, from from my or at least my <laughs> crew. Uh, yeah, unless they're a music reporter in Brooklyn, I guess. <laughs> we got a recent review where they called that the bathroom song. Oh, let's <laughs> well, run for the roses. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no, but they're all great songs. It's yeah. tough. Well, that's the thing that I always reflect to people to player to you know players getting into this music now is that is that uh, every song was a dance song. No matter what the tempo, no matter what the style was, it was somebody's favorite song to dance to. My, you know, and I didn't, you know, I know somebody else's song to go to the bathroom to. Um, but you, you know, you don't play to the people that are going to the bathroom, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Were you with Phil and Bobby when they found out Bear had died? Yeah, yeah, we we played in at the um, Radio City, Radio City, like the next day, and learned um, Alice, Alice D. Millionaire. Millionaire yeah. I think that's the greatest moment in the history like, of that band. That's, that's there's me like you know. Trying a song for the first time. I mean, I'd heard the song, you know, but I'd, it wasn't a song I listened to or had ever learned before. I think I kind of, that maybe that yeah. lent the purity to it. I mean, the, mm-hmm. people always talked about you channeling Jerry, and I'm like, whatever, yeah, whatever, I'm not into that stuff. But I would that, tell people, no, no, I mean, you're channeling Jerry. I'm playing music. Your ears are channeling Jerry. <laughs> that's kind of what you know, I would say. As a listener. Not you know? Alice D. Millionaire. <laughs> right. Some kind yeah. of serious shit was going on. <laughs> what, what, did, you, did you feel any different than on your normal playing? That Alice D. Millionaire and the way it went into Cream Pot. I just meant, I just felt nervous about, like, oh, God, I hope I don't fuck this up. I don't know, you probably no, it's a podcast. Don't worry about it. <laughs> more nervous than the first time you walked on stage at the Fox with them? Were you more nervous to do that Alice D? Uh, because you knew every, we all were going to hear it and scrutinize. <laughs> no, I don't know. And you nailed it. And also that yeah, run. I don't remember nailing it. But <laughs> you got to be kidding me. That's funny. And then it eased right into Cream Puff. I love it. It's my favorite moment. And from that same run, there's Train in Vain into the Might as Well. Mm-hmm. That was Train in Vain your idea? No, that was Bobby's. Right on, Bobby. Purely, purely Bobby. And he, he had a great... I don't, I, I'm going to mash it up if I try and tell it, but he's got a great story about hanging with... Um, Joe Strummer, yeah, on a on a you know getting getting drunk with him on a rooftop till till dawn. And it sounds like New York. And they and they have a mutual love of um, of uh, um, uh, uh, what is it? Light, what you, uh, Howlin' Wolf. Oh, okay. So very cool. And I imagine that might have something to do with the Wolf Brothers thing too. All right. In retrospect. But that same name choice, you know, he, you know, Bobby loves Howlin' Wolf. I think and he that, felt like it was a group. Well, that they and that he felt like that was actually a Howlin' Wolf groove on Train in Vain. So, but to me, that's the defining run of the band. Hmm. You also have the third night with Larry and Teresa and mm-hmm. Elvis Costello yeah. and Diana, uh, Diana Crawl. Did you get? How much time did you get with Elvis? And did you oh, get any no, feedback? No, it was like having. It was like having. You know, I don't know. I don't know. The, <laughs> it was a little bit of separation, as it were. They kind of kept to themselves a bit. I didn't really get to hang out with them. That's too bad. But you got to play with them. A bit of the, you know, the superstars and we're the backing band. <laughs> Looking back on it, do you feel it's something that peaked and petered out to the end, or do you feel like you were getting better and better right up until the end? I mean, you know, I mean, there was some. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think it was. I think it was going stronger after the end. I mean, I, I think the Mexico shows were pretty, you know, kind of. Everyone I've talked to thought they were, you know, says they thought they were great. So I don't know how much of that is location and. 
Did you know it was ending? experience and yeah, I think we did at that point. So that's kind of tough to play, you know, or that we were going on hiatus or whatever indefinitely. <laughs> Would they argue about tempos in front of you? Could it could it get? I mean, they, I know they love each other and they're tight, yeah. but tempos they they don't see eye to eye. And I can make a good argument for yeah. either style. Yeah. Right, fast tempo is more accessible and people get more charged up. But the we're slower. There's more of a canvas to paint. There's more room for build and yeah. interplay. Don't right. you think? Yeah, sure. And that's you know that's. I, you know, I'm always with projects tend to, you know, like, I don't know what I, what I saw happening with the Grateful Dead when Jerry was around was that whoever the lead singer was, was the band leader of the moment. And, uh, that, that ultimately, you know, that delivering the vocal was the first, you know, telling the story, you know, that was one of, that was one of, uh, I remember a, a vividly, uh, a David Crosby interview on the Grateful Dead hour where he said like one of the things that the, that, that accounts for the Grateful Dead's longevity is that they never forget to tell the tale. Well, actually, that's kind of my message to some of the some of the newer people jumping into the scene now that didn't see the Dead with Jerry that are just all excited to, you know, to freestyle it. And it's like, well, you know, that's great, but don't forget to tell the story. Right. <laughs> and make sure the jam kind of somehow feeds the story, not just interrupts it. If I may interject... <laughs> We are on the Osiris Podcast Network, yeah. and I believe the interview you're referencing was conducted by Steve Silberman. And Steve with Sil- David Crosby? Yes. No, no, it was it was David Gans. Oh, okay, it was well, a Grateful there, Dead Hour with David Gans. Oh yeah, I know. But there, like, yeah. there is a one Grateful Dead Hour also that has Steve Silberman talking with Dave Crosby, David Crosby, and yeah. they are doing a four part podcast on our network, and that will yeah. be coming. I mean, this up. was I had this tape, and it was definitely cool. it was definitely a whole Grateful Dead Hour with yeah. just David Gans and David Crosby. I'm gonna go find it. I'll find uh, that one they, too. On that one, had a great extended outtake of. Um, a song called The Wall Song from ah, the Crosby Nash album. Yes. And uh, all the, you know, five-minute jam that they edited off for the vinyl uh, is still out there, and they played it on the show, and it's just amazing jam. It's, uh, you know, Jerry, Phil, and Billy with uh, with David on um, 12-string electric and, and Graham Nash on piano, and it's just fantastic. <laughs> Do you, Have you met Crosby? No, no, I have not met David Crosby. Are you a fan of his tunings? Do you have you studied his tunings? I have not studied his tunings, but he's he is one of my favorite vocalists, and I I cover several of his songs in in various projects. Page forty three has been one of my uh, like go to ballads since the early nineties. Look around again. Yeah. <laughs> um, Golden Gate Wingman is that? Do you find it strictly from an improvisational sense that that is maybe your most fun area? I mean, Jeff. Oh yeah. yeah. Jeff's got to be great to play Jeff with. Jeff is Reed. They're all great. Reed's uh, sick. I, I was a fan of Jay's, Reed's back at Jeff. Jay is the most present drummer I've ever played with. It's fairly, like anything that's happening on stage, he responds to instantly. And still can kind of keep the, the rhythm trance going at the same time. You know, there's a lot of guys that it's kind of one or the other. Like you can get into the rhythm trance, but then they kind of tune everyone out. <laughs> or they're paying attention to people, but they can't, you know, they can't. You know, stay in the rhythm trance. And well, you have to so like you Jay's have three, just got both three different thoughts going on at yeah, one time, right? Exactly. Sort of. Yeah, three, four, five, depending on how many players are on stage. <laughs> and this project, it's JGB Melvin's JGB with you mm-hmm. sitting in, and you a lot of it you do true to it, but you also with the Ardmore show was webcast, so I got to see yeah. things like Tough Mama, how you do the end of Tough Mama, how you get to the end Which of I it. I think you know, Melvin, Melvin, you know, there's uh, there's a, a Darth of uh, 93 to 95 Jerry Garcia band shows I've, I feel on tape available um, and I started dipping into you know a few recordings here and there that popped up on YouTube and, and there were some arrangements that 
they were changed. They were starting to change a bunch of arrangements in the band in in 1993, 94. Um, and I think maybe that 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 uh, tough mama also like that the ending jam on that like dates to that. I didn't know that era. You know, interesting. They had a different ending to. There was an ending to Money Honey that I'd never heard before the other day. I'm like, where did you come up with that? And I stumbled on a 93, and there 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 it is. I'm like, oh. And he brought back stuff I mean, like that's why I've, you know that's one of the things I, uh, I keep relearning in this scene is that like as much as I think I've heard twenty versions of a song, <laughs> there's there's twenty others that are exceptions to that that I haven't heard yet. You know, <laughs> even though there's twenty that sound the same, there's these other you know there's other ones that are really different sometimes. They also brought in the back- same tour sometimes. You know, the Grateful Dead would do you know occasionally they would get a wild hair and try something in a wacko different key tempo Absolutely. or key or whatever. You know. Or add slide to something. Right. So. But they also brought, Jerry Band brought back Twilight and When the Hunter Gets Captured by the Game. I mean, do you touch any of that material? I know you do Love in the Afternoon. Uh, yeah. I mean, we haven't done, uh, we haven't, well, we've been talking about uh, Hunter Gets Captured by the Game. I think Chi is maybe singing it in this lineup. Uh, but. Uh, do you ever take something like Expressway or Finders Keepers and put it in the middle of another song? Or do you think with Jerry you know, Band like, that that should This is really, uh, you know, Melvin's the band leader and he right. picks his set lists. And I, I've I've really enjoyed his set lists on this tour. So I, I have had very little desire to to uh, to get involved and influence it, you know. And say, How about this? You ever tempted to pick up a violin on Cumberland? You know you could shred it. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't like playing violin if there's not another guitarist in the band. Okay. Um, unless I'm going to be doing some Jean-Luc Ponty music or something, you know, <laughs> which I've covered a few Jean-Luc Ponty songs and Mahavishnu Orchestra songs in the past and stuff. But uh, although even Mahavishnu, you know, even Ponty would usually have a guitarist. And of course, Mahavishnu had, you know, John McLaughlin. Sick. Uh, but, do you ever do Egocentric Molecules? You know that one? I do know that one. Uh, I've not done that one. I've uh, I've done. Uh, mostly I've done a song called Boeing Boeing. Okay. And uh, and, there, and there was another song that I was covering that String Cheese jumped on, the Mona Boa. Uh, was a song I used to jam in, in Wingnut. And then I think I was pre, I think I was at the same, I mean, I know for a fact I was at the same Jean-Luc Ponty show in uh, at the House of Blues in Chicago that String Cheese members were at. I saw them in front of me, <laughs> you know. And they, play, you know, that was kind of the hot, their sort of big hot rave up. You know, it's it's basically a three chord, simple three chord song, although it transposes a few times, and it and it's a feature for the bass player to really shred in that band. But so John K band trucking along, and that's where your original material is pretty much going to be. Yeah, and Golden Gate Wingman plays plays a, a bunch of everybody's original material, and we need to well, give mostly it- mine and Reed's. But you know, we work on we do some of Jay's. I bring some of Jay's stuff into the uh, John K band too. Um, you know, mostly that. Uh, Ancient Alien Astronaut song. <laughs> Reed's just a great guy. I hung out with him at Christmas Jam once. Yeah. What a what a just what a mind on that guy. Yeah, yeah. He's a- um, we get Gypsy Sally's. Just uh, the building's been purchased and they're going to have to either move or close. That's yeah. been a, a you know. Yeah, I've, you know, I've I've had to keep keep that under my hat for about a month now. But I'm sorry to hear that. And you're going to be presiding over the final night there. Yeah, they asked me to do the to do the last show there. It'd be like January fourth somewhere in there. So yeah, something like that. Third, fourth, I think. Third, you, fourth, fifth, I don't know. Maybe the fifth might be starting to tear the place down, I don't know. Low, you know, like, they got the they got their sound system from uh, the Birch Mirror. So, I mean, which is a little bit overkill for that room. 
that sound the sound system they could sell off to a, to a much bigger room to start a venue with, or they could take it with them to a bigger room. But I, I'm not sure that they're planning on launching a new venue or not. But again, it's not not really my department to comment on. So no, but you need to you need to find a new home venue though. That's where oh, you live, they're, right? They're, uh, well. Honestly, my most of my projects do better. That's a place where I do like multiple night runs. Sure, or residencies. Um, and uh, you know, and it's and then you know, I, I mostly I keep playing it because I like the owners. <laughs> the stage is a little funny angle. Half the stage is behind the bar, and you know, it's a uh, the PA system hangs in your face if you're on one side or the other. And uh, uh, but uh, you know, it was a fun spot. It had definitely had a vibe and. And there are some other spots. I mean, I play the Hamilton a lot, and it's another place that's uh, very jam band friendly. And they're getting better. They used to be a little bit, used to be a little too clean cabaret, but it's starting to starting to get broken in and starting to feel like you can make a mess there and not upset anybody. They just cleaned it up. <laughs> what about Birchmere? You know, I the Birchmere I really haven't uh, I really haven't played that much. And uh, you know, for one reason or another, uh, it just hasn't come up. Right now, there's this rash of new venues that opened up, you know, um, in like the next size up. It's a little bit crazy how many, you know, like over three years, like, you know, the Fillmore, 1,000 Capacity came in, the Anthem came in, uh, the Lincoln Theater opened up, and, uh, you know, like all these were the same size club as the 930 Club, um, or in some cases bigger, and they're, you know... Fillmore has Live Nation backing, so they can do whatever you know. They they can amortize anything across their entire national budget, and, right? Um, and do package booking too, right? And uh, you know, they're I don't know who's behind the anthem, but they're booking bands, and they don't seem to care whether the place sells out or fill or even gets half full or not. You know, which takes gigs away from other clubs that would maybe be more appropriate for some shows. You know. But uh, I don't know. I'm starting to see that as a trend all over. But I don't know. Do you a baseball fan? Do you care that the Nationals are in the World Series? I mean, it's kind of cool. I'm not. Uh, but you know, I'm gonna. I guess I'm gonna. I'm gonna put my nerd badge on the sleeve and say I'm not really much of a televised sports fan. You like seeing them in person. You know, it's a fun thing to do. But if I have the time and there's somebody who somebody else who's going to be really into it. <laughs> So. All right, I appreciate your time. I'm, I'm wrapping up, I promise. Right. You did meet John Barlow. Can you talk about yes. how that happened and, and what you took away from that? Well, there was a, a common friend. Um, there's a, a guy, he, uh, he was kind of well-known in the Bay Area as the guy with, a, with the dancing bear suit. Oh, uh, which, you know, I met him. Yeah. Sometimes he'd be lighted up, right? And he would he, dance behind the stage at the old Oakland Auditorium. That guy, right? Probably, probably that guy. And uh, you know he owns a bunch of uh, a bunch of properties around the San Francisco area that he, he runs them all as more like artist housing. Okay, uh, keeps them affordable. And uh, and uh, and uh, Barlow was staying in one of his places, and he was you know was pretty tight with him. So he kind of uh, brought me over to his, to his place one day uh, one night. Um, you know while he's recovering from a, a surgery. And, what year uh, would this be? This was just a couple of years ago. Okay. Uh, and uh, I had been doing uh, uh, We Can Run uh, in my solo sets a lot. And it sort of transposed it down to a little more people's key. Not a big not a big shift from A to G, but it makes it strum out on a guitar a little easier. It's easier to sing along. And 
so it was just kind of coming into the two of us, like walking down the hallway, playing We Can Run for him. And uh, he shared some just amazing stories about riding with uh, um, with Brent Midland. Uh, like he said, though, like that's the most intimate he's ever been with another man, <laughs> writing songs with Brent Midland that he, you know. And uh, he warned. And then we get to sit there while you know while he you know he had his uh, the, the the feature of the evening was making cucumber salad, <laughs> and all of us going like, do we want the do we want the guy recovering from surgery on meds to have the sharp knife? <laughs> <laughs> he did fine. What are you going to tell a guy like that who says you know safety third? <laughs> it's one of his mottos. So so he was tied with Brent, huh? Yeah, yeah. By his account, yeah. Yeah, he was a troubled and, uh, soul at the end there, wasn't he? Again, by other people's accounts, I can't speak from first person, you know. But it's, you know, he was the longest running keyboardist. Somebody but he's the new guy till the day he died. Yeah. Sad. We don't own this place, although we act as if we did. It belongs to the children of our children's kids and not the actual owners haven't even been born yet. That's, Barlow yeah. wrote that? Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, that song never got its due. And he would write, you know, apparently he pretty much, you know, most of those songs Barlow actually wrote the music for too. Oh, I didn't know that. And, uh, and pretty much Brent was just like just approved it and did it. <laughs> so, I think there were a couple of the early some of the uh, "Go to Heaven" songs were songs that he brought in from before that, and that became that was the beginning of their writing collaboration. Was uh, they sent him to Barlow to, to to tweak his lyrics a little bit, and he changed like "Blackbird" to "Raven" and right. and. Uh, Easy to love you or something like that, and uh, but uh, and but then after that they're off and running, writing you know all the stuff. There was a bunch of songs in the mid '80s that never made it on a record. Gentlemen, start your engines. And uh, I saw that in Pittsburgh. You know, good times got played quite a bit. Good times blues, but still never made it on an album. I think it got on a live album, maybe. I always thought that was a cover. No, that was one of Brent's tunes. Which is good advice. Never trust a woman. Wears her pants too tight. I don't know. <laughs> There's a message there. Um, finally, almost done. Jeff Matson, have you seen Dark Star with him? Uh, not since since I mean, he was one of the guys that like it's at some point in Dark in Dark Star Orchestra. I was the only guy that had been in his or her respective. Well, Lisa, you know, was pretty original. She came in by like show three or something, so she's pretty much original member too. But but I but she you know there were plenty of shows we did without her. You know, that didn't involve, you know, uh, um, and so I was like kind of the only, you know, the only guy who, who, who couldn't call a sub, you know, couldn't say, man, I really want to take a vacation in that time slot. Can't you, <laughs> can't you do one drummer shows for a week or, uh, uh, you know, or whatever, or uh, I want to take a vacation. Can't you do 80 shows for a week or, you know, or I get sick and you, can you guys play without me? No. Um, so I, you know, I wanted to find some, you know, and Jeff, Jeff was one of the guys I invited to just kind of take over my chair for a set, something like that. Another guy was um, uh, Butchie from uh, Splintered Sunlight. Oh, okay. Was another guy I invited out for a smaller show to just kind of, why don't you do this one tonight? <laughs> if you want, you know? So that's good. You and Jeff are friendly. There's no like, yeah. oh, no, no, there. if I could, you know, and I, I've said this a bunch of times, if I could have handpicked my replacement, it would have been Jeff, it would be Jeff Manson. Yeah, the first dead cover man I ever saw was yeah. the volunteers on Long yeah. Island. That was him. Yeah. Thank you, Bill Sheckman. Um, and what's your defining memory of Dark Star Orchestra? Is there any moment, any l- large, like, wow, when you think back on it, that was great, that moment, that show. And the same for further. Uh, and we'll end on that. 
I know it's not an easy one. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of shows there. It's a long time ago. Right. <laughs> I mean, you, I think you know the first time Bobby came to to sit in with us. You know, apologies to Rob Eaton if it if his, if his toes feel trod upon by me saying this, but uh, uh, the first time Bobby, you know, like uh, um, sat in with us and and it just worked. And we and he, you know, we had a couple moments where he looked at us and we looked at him and like, what's happening next? <laughs> and we worked it out on the fly, you know. <laughs> but uh, I think that was the Warfield. And then... Um, Around 2001, something like that. Yeah, maybe. But, uh, and then um, with Further, it was definitely, uh, I don't know, it's a toss-up between uh, Madison Square Garden and the, and the Red Rocks where uh, Brantford sat in with us. Oh, yeah. I've got that one. Thank you so much, man. I'm looking forward. To, uh, this is only the beginning. There's much more for you. Uh, Coming down the road. Keep writing, uh, man. I hope so. <laughs> Appreciate your time. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for letting me talk. Uh, I hope that was all right. Yeah, I think so. John must have had a good time with Rob because before he went on his way, he gave Rob a recording of an unreleased song that John co-wrote with Robert Hunter. That's right, the late, great Robert Hunter. So here it is. Enjoy, and while you do, I'm going to Disney!
So blue, so blue. 